Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Sergio Verdu. Uh, on behalf of the University Public Lectures Committee, I'm delighted to welcome everyone to tonight's Van Oxen Lecture. Uh, this lecture series was founded in 1912 by a bequest of Louis Clark Van Oxen of the class of 1879. Lecturers in this series have included Edwin Havel, Thomas Mann, Robert Oppenheimer, John von Neumann, and Claude Shannon. So it is a special honor to introduce tonight's lecturer, John Hennessy, president of Stanford University. John Hennessy received his undergraduate degree in electrical engineering from Villanova University in 1973. He joined the Stanford faculty upon the completion of his doctorate in computer science at the State University of New York at Stony Brook in 1977. And then shortly after, John Hennessy's passion for innovation gave rise to the revolutionary MIPS technology, which is a computer architecture that led to the longest period of sustained performance growth in the past 30 years in the computer industry. In addition to his role in basic research, uh, John Hennessy played a key role in transferring this technology to industry by founding a highly successful Silicon Valley company called MIPS Computer Systems. Now, John Hennessy is the author of two internationally used undergraduate and graduate textbooks on computer architecture design. He is a member of both the National Academy of Sciences and the National Academy of Engineering and uh, is a recipient of numerous research awards, including the prestigious John von Neumann Medal awarded by the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. He has also received honorary doctorates from Villanova, the State University of New York, and the Polytechnic University of Catalonia. John Hennessy's meteoric rise through the academic and administrative ranks at Stanford is legendary. He was the chair of computer science in 1994, the dean of engineering in 1996, provost in 1999, and president since 2000 at the age of 47. I give you John Hennessy. Well, thank you, Sergio. The comment that's usually made after that last brief uh, discussion of my titles is, it's proof that he can't hold a job. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to be here tonight. And um, the real question for me is, now that I've been president for two and a half years and had various administrative jobs for two or three more years, um, can I still give a technical talk? So that will be what we'll try to do tonight. And what I'm going to share with you are my perspectives and insight into what's been happening in the design of high-performance computers, focusing mostly on, on unit processors, but, but moving beyond that towards the end. And what I think has to change in the way we approach these um, designs, given what I think are some fundamental arguments that the current methods which have been exploited for so long will not continue. So 
This is the two to the fifth power anniversary of the first microprocessor, a four-bit microprocessor containing, that's right, 2,300 transistors that Intel delivered, the 4,004, um, and a performance 0.1 million instructions per second, unbelievable by today's standards. There have been numerous innovations over time, but what I think of as somewhere between four and five generations, which I'll say a little more about in terms of new technology approaches. But underlying all that, there have been two fundamental drivers that have enabled us to boost performance by factors well over 1,000 uh, in a 20-year, roughly 20-year period. One has been the development of extremely sophisticated memory hierarchies, techniques which help us bridge the gap between a very fast processor, and a relatively slow dynamic random access memory. Uh, what I'm going to focus on is not that aspect of it, but the instruction level parallelism part of it. And the reason is, to some extent, the development of those memory hierarchies was driven by the fact that execution rates of processors were accelerating at a much faster pace than the access times from memory. And I want to talk about the innovations and progress, but also some of the, the challenges and where we stand at the beginning. So just a quick survey of what's happened in the past 32 years. Uh, the first generation, as I said, very small processors. Uh, microprocessors which were thought not of as computers, but as microcontrollers. All programmed in assembly language, um, quite modest uh, things in the beginning. And then developing with the introduction of the, the personal computer and then subsequently the workstation to really become real computers in that second generation. And the thing you notice about that second generation is the architectural influence of the mini computer and mainframe industry as the people who were designing microprocessors began to understand those technologies. Then a third generation where we really see the introduction of, of reduced instruction set technology uh, the MIPS project at Stanford, the RISC project led by my colleague uh, David Patterson, and of course the famous work done by John Cock at IBM. And all of a sudden, the microprocessors challenge, meet their first hurdle, basically beating the mini computers at their own game, giving more performance for less cost. Then a fourth generation beginning in about 1990 where something interesting happens microprocessor technology becomes the architectural experiment, the sandbox where new architectural ideas are exploited and developed. So architectural and performance leadership, the first 64-bit architectures appear, um, the use of advanced instruction-level parallelism techniques and caches, um, and processors from a whole variety of vendors, the Pentium 3, the MIPS processors, the Alpha processors from DEC, and the IBM Power architectures. And then I think we're on the threshold of a fifth generation. And I'm going to argue that that fifth generation will be characterized by the use of more explicit on-chip parallelism by probably moving really into the parallel domain. And I'll argue why, that's, why that essentially almost has to be the case. And perhaps we see this in the beginning with the new IBM Power 4 Plus and the Pentium 4 um, HT, which stands for hyperthread. One of the things that, that Intel does, if you haven't noticed, is they um, take research from universities, they put it in their products, and then they rename it. 
So people might think that they actually invented it. Um, they've done a very good job of that. I think it's one of the reasons they've been so successful, is they're a tremendous technology transfer engine. Um, and they've done a great job of it. Anyway, you know, the other interesting thing about this is that's a few thousand, 2,000 transistors. This is over 200 million. So the span in terms of size and complexity is absolutely stunning. So what have we seen? I think we've seen performance rise at 1.5x a year compounded over, over now essentially 20 years, a tremendous amount of performance growth. Um, so that machines today on typical benchmarks are in the neighborhood of 4,000 times faster than they were in the early 1980s. I think there's one important insight that it's critical to understand about Moore's Law and what technology does to you. And that's if you think about what happens as you shrink device dimensions. To first of course, the devices get faster. But more importantly, as you shrink the dimension, the number of devices you, go, you get goes up as the square of that shrinkage. So what is the job that a computer architect has looking at that technology? The job of the architect, of course, is to use those faster transistors, but more importantly, to take the growth in transistors given to you by Moore's Law and turn that into performance and new functionality. And that's, in fact, what's happened. Of course, at the same time, you not only get more transistors, but you get faster transistors. So you're constantly trying to find architectural innovations. The relatively minor architectural innovation is we went from 4 bits to 8 bits to 16 bits to 32 to 64. But that's easy. The much more challenging one is to get more performance extracted at the same time. So a couple slide tutorial on what instruction level parallelism is. The idea is reasonably simple. You exploit the parallelism that exists naturally in an instruction stream that a computer is running. So take this simple example. We have three statements here which would compile into multiple instructions, 10 or 15 instructions, depending on the details of the architecture. And now what you do is rather than execute these in sequential order, you, you recognize that the second statement here, E gets E plus F, can be executed in parallel with the first statement. And you basically execute them as if those two things happen in parallel, and then combine into the final result. Now, there are several ways in which you can exploit that parallelism. The one we all probably have heard of and is talked about most often is pipelining. Pipelining is a simple idea. You overlap the execution of those instructions uh, in the same way that an assembly line overlaps uh, the manufacturer of whatever's going down the assembly line. For example, an automobile assembly line overlaps the the, the construction of multiple automobiles in time. So you do the same thing in pipelining, and that's one way to do it. The other way to do it, which I'll talk some more about, probably a fair amount about, is you do some sort of multiple instruction issue. You let the processor execute multiple instructions in a given clock cycle, and thereby exploit that parallelism. So let's talk about the two primary ways in which you can do this. One way you do it is a software-centric approach. The processor has, in some form or another, the ability to place multiple operations into a single instruction. 
and here I use the word instruction in an unusual way in that it really has multiple operations and it. it does multiple things. But you can think of it conceptually as one big instruction. Hence the original name, uh, very long instruction word computers, because they literally had a whole set of operations stacked out, and so they were quite wide, 128-bit, 256-bit wide instructions carrying multiple operations in them. Uh, more recently, Intel, uh, who in the IA64 architecture uses a version of these ideas, has also called this EPIC, standing for Explicitly Parallel Instruction Computer. So you might have, for example, here's, a, here's an instruction that might have three operations in it, something to access memory, something to do an arithmetic operation, and something to do a branch. The key insight here is that the compiler, the software system, takes responsibility for finding the instruction level parallelism and pack it, packaging it up. So it finds the operations, figures out if there are a set of operations which are independent of one another, because if you're going to execute them in parallel, well, then they can't depend, one can't depend on the results of the other. You have to do them in parallel. And schedules these operations into instructions. So it's a software-intensive approach. What are the advantages? Well, potentially, and I say the word potentially here because I think we'll see that, in fact, um, it's a, a dubious proposition, uh, potentially simpler hardware. The disadvantages, obviously, you shift a bunch of complexity into the compiler that you have to deal with. And there is some potential inefficiency in this approach. Consider, for example, if I had a memory access instruction and an arithmetic operation, but no branch to be done, then I might end up leaving that field in the instruction empty. Waste bits and potentially waste throughput. The other way to skin this cat is to try and do it in hardware. So here, two concepts are used, and both building blocks um, uh, come into play. Uh, the first is a concept called superscalar, where the processor examines instructions uh, in order and then determines whether it can execute one instruction, two instructions, three instructions, four instructions, just by looking at the structure of those instructions and the possible dependencies that exist among them. The other concept is a concept called dynamic scheduling. Um, the simple way to explain dynamic scheduling is that the processor looks at a collection of instructions, extracts the data flow, that is the dependencies among the instructions, and then executes those instructions whenever the operands of a given instruction are available. So just think of it as a, you could think of it as drawing a tree, for example, that showed how instructions depend on one another, and then working from the leaves of the tree towards the, towards the root. It's not quite a tree, but uh, it's more complicated. But the basic concept is like that. Today, all high-performance superscalar processors use dynamic scheduling. If you go to the, the low end, the, what's sometimes called the embedded computer market, um, what's inside games and inside your digital TV um, or your automobile, uh, you'd find that there are superscalar-only implementations. But all the high-end processors combine the two techniques. So what would happen there is you'd notice, for example, the processor would notice that this instruction didn't have any dependencies on that one, but that this depended 
the value A here and the value B here. So you'd be able to execute these things in parallel and then subsequently this one. So what are the advantages? Um, it flexibly accommodates instructions with unpredictable running times. Um, it makes it easier to schedule con those kinds of instructions. Possibly the more important difference is because the hardware is doing this function, a single version of the code, a single software version, can run reasonably well on different hardware implementations. And that, that clearly in a market where there's so much third-party software out there and where the vendors are remarkably resistant to recompiling turns out to be a major, um, a major tactical advantage. The obvious disadvantage is that we put a bunch of functionality, which could have been in software, into hardware, and that always makes life more complicated. Now, there's one other key idea I have to introduce, and it's an idea called speculation. So the first thing to realize is that somewhere in the range of 20 to 30% of the instructions that a typical computer executes are actually branches. So if they're branches, that means that I only have perhaps three or four instructions between branches. Now, think about what that means in terms of the amount of instruction-level parallelism that might be extracted in that three or four instructions. Small. There'll be a fair number of dependencies within that basic level. And if this technique won't go very well, it simply won't be able to find very much power. So, how do we get around that? We use an idea called speculation. So, speculation is simple. You predict which way the branch goes, you guess, basically, and then you compile the code as if your guess was right. Or you schedule the code. Then what you're doing is, in some sense, part Okay. Now can you hear me? <laughs> I'm good at yelling anyway, so it's... <clears throat> you compile the code as if you knew which way the branch was going, and thereby overlap multiple sequences of sequential instructions, giving you the opportunity to possibly find more parallelism. Now, if you think about this quickly, you realize that if you've got a loop, a set of code with a branch around it, one thing you can do is overlap multiple executions of the loop. And since loops are where a lot of the execution time is spent, there is the opportunity to find lots of parallelism through this technique. So this is a place where there's a key difference between the software-intensive approach and the hardware-intensive approach. The software-intensive approach relies on, on software to do that speculation. So the compiler predicts which way the branch goes. It um, moves code around. It inserts fix-up code if it needs it when it guesses wrong about which way the branch is going to go. <clears throat> In the hardware-intensive approach, hardware predicts the branch, which way the branch will go. So the branch either is taken or not taken, goes one way or the other. And then analyzes the predicted data flow by looking at the sequence of code which now, think of what happens when you predict this branch. You can think of it as basically removing the branch. And now you've got a whole bunch of code that you can look at the data flow on. You, you get that data flow, you schedule the code, and then you have a hardware recovery mechanism if your prediction was wrong. One of the interesting historical observations about this, um, this technique 
is that this is the modern motivation for doing dynamic scheduling. Um, it's one of the more interesting observations that occur t sometimes in computer architecture. You invent a technique to solve one problem. Dynamic scheduling was originally invented to solve a problem in the IBM architecture that there weren't enough floating point registers. Um, what happened is eventually you change the architecture and that problem goes away. But then the key technique, the insight that it buys, enables you to solve another problem. And in particular, it's now this combination of dynamic scheduling and speculation. Notice that you can't do this without, you need these two techniques because you don't really know if you're doing this with a hardware-intensive approach whether the branch is going to be taken or not. So you don't know which version of the code represents the real data flow inside the program. So what's happened with this technique over time? Well, in 1985, the first kind of simple microprocessor pipelines appeared. They could do one instruction per clock, and they could sustain it um, in, the, in the right situation. Then things began to accelerate. 1990 saw the first what we call static multiple issue superscalar, so a, a um, compiler-driven approach, the first machine to do that. That was actually Intel's first attempt at a VLIW architecture. Then 1995, things accelerated with these sophisticated dynamic superscalar techniques. They uncovered the parallelism dynamically. They did speculative execution. And we moved up to doing four instructions per clock cycle. So you're trying to execute four instructions per clock cycle. The techniques since 2000, other than the I64 approach, have largely been built on that basic insight. So you're doing more instruction issues, you have fewer restrictions, you look at more instructions, um, and you speculate more branches. So the modern architectures are now speculating to up to eight branches. So if you think about it, they've predicted eight branches and laid out the code from eight different sections, and now they're trying to exploit all the instruction-level parallelism across those eight branches. Obviously, the difficulty with this is even if you have very good branch prediction for one, your branch prediction successively falls, and hence, it becomes less and less efficient, which is a key insight. Then Intel introduced the IA64 architecture, which was a return to a more software-intensive approach. Um, I think because they believed that this approach possibly wouldn't work or would be too complicated. Um, and that's, a, I think, a point that's now in great debate. But the key insight here is that to some extent, 20 years ago, the core concept of instruction-level parallelism was understood. There's been a tremendous amount of advancement in the detailed techniques, doing all the engineering to make these things work. But the insight that you could exploit this kind of parallelism was there 20 years ago. So essentially what you've seen is a very quick ramp of exploiting these techniques. My guess is we're near the end of this 20-year path. And I'll show you why I think that's true. So today there's a great debate between a set of software techniques that rely primarily on smart compiler technology and a set of hardware techniques that rely on building very clever schemes in the hardware for doing branch prediction, dynamic scheduling. <clears throat> and one gets into arguments about which is better than the other. In fact, this is one of the, the great debates now in computer architecture, is one approach superior to the other. And I think there's no good evidence. And in fact, I'll show you some evidence that 
It's not, it's absolutely not clear that one is better than the other. Um, each has areas where it has advantages and disadvantages. So it's unlikely that one will completely supplant the other. And they're not, at least philosophically, terribly compatible. They rely on fundamentally different assumptions about how the work is going to be distributed, who's going to find parallels. One may try to find techniques from column A and move them over to column B and vice versa, but they're on the margin. The basic approach is from one side or the other. Now, let me show you a few, say one other thing about performance gap here and then I'll show you some interesting data. There's another key observation about what's happened during this time frame, and that's that the gap between what we think of as the peak performance, what could this processor possibly execute? How many instructions could it possibly execute if the world was perfect? So give it a sequence of instructions where no instruction depends on any other, and the choice of instructions exactly matches what the underlying hardware has. What could it possibly do? And then what does it really do? What does it really sustain on typical programs that you might execute? That gap has grown significantly in the past 20 years. In 1984, it was typically a factor of 1.5 between peak and sustained on integer code. Today, there's virtually no program that doesn't show a gap of at least three. There are lots of programs that show gaps of five. And you can find comparable things in floating point scientific codes as well. Now, there's a popular wisdom that says, it doesn't matter. Transistors are free. Moore's law keeps making them cheap. Um, forget about it. But I think that's a very short-sighted view. In fact, that efficiency does matter. If you want to continue to get performance growth from Moore's law, you better not continually lose efficiency, because otherwise you'll be leaving that capability behind. We're already in a situation where boosting the peak performance is quite costly. Think about these processors doing eight instructions per clock, how many functional units they have, and I'll show you some data on that. So this is already a problem. Most importantly, I think, is that power is becoming the major limitation in the design of a modern microprocessor. So energy efficiency really does matter, and it will I believe this will be the key problem that forces us to think about other approaches. So let me just say a little bit about where performance goes, just to give you a flavor of what's happening here. First of all, there are limitations in exploiting the instruction level parallelism of two different kinds. There are cases where there's limited parallelism in the code. It almost doesn't matter what you do. Uh, programs vary significantly in the amount of instruction level parallelism that they have, depending on the type of application, the way it's coded, the way it's compiled. Um, the peak instruction level parallelism isn't equal to the average. So you may have very high peaks, but in order to, to and low valleys, in order to get good performance, you have to smooth that out somehow. That smoothing turns into a lot of buffering. It's hard to buffer that instruction level parallelism over long code segments. The hardware may simply be unable to exploit it all. Uh, in order to deal with the fact that in a modern processor, going to the main memory, going to DRAM, may take 100 clock cycles, which translates into two or 300 instruction times. In order to hide that latency, 
How do you hide that? Clearly, if you let that happen very often, the machine's going to run very slowly. So you hide it by trying to find other things to do. Well, finding enough other things to do to hide 100 clock cycles, 300 instructions, that requires you to find a tremendous amount of parallelism at the instruction level. There are also mismatches between the instruction level parallelism in the code and the functional units. Um, the fact that exploiting all the instruction level parallelism requires you to be nearly perfect in your branch predictor and in memory disambiguation and a number of other places. And then, of course, there are the limitations that come about in the design of these processors as you begin to make the number of instructions they can execute in any clock cycle bigger and bigger you're forced to deal with lots of nasty electrical, physical, and power problems. Um, unfortunately, several of these problems have the difficulty that the transistor count needed to implement some critical stage of this machine grows faster than the number of instructions you're adding per clock cycle. So you've got something that consumes transistors at a fairly hefty rate. And that's what makes scaling up the issue with, with increasingly, increasingly difficult. So let me just show you some, some data here. Here's a, this is a piece of data from a classical study which just talks about how much instruction level parallelism is there in the abstract. So this is sort of the perfect situation, a perfect machine. It can execute as many instructions per clock cycle as you'd like of any type. So it can do, if it needed to, 500 load instructions to access memory in one clock cycle. This is an experiment that was done by basically taking a program, running it from beginning to end, laying out the entire data flow of the program, assuming every single branch was predicted perfectly, and then seeing what could be done in parallel. So it's a limit experiment in that, to that extent. But still the numbers are pretty good here. If I could build a machine that could execute 150 instructions per clock cycle, I'd put Intel out of business. If I could execute even 18 instructions per clock cycle, I'd be a very happy man. These are integer programs, by the way, these three. So they're a compiler and a, a CAD tool and an interpreter. And these are floating point scientific codes. So you'll notice there's a lot more parallelism in the scientific codes. But still, all these numbers look pretty good. Looks like there's a lot of roadway ahead of us. So what's wrong with that data? Well, it's too perfect. It's getting to the point where building that machine will simply be, in, from an engineering viewpoint, impractical. So here's what happens when you start to look at more realistic instruction level parallelism uh, levels. So here we've got a machine which has perfect memory disambiguation, um, a large, powerful branch predictor. There are no penalties for guessing wrong in this because we're just looking at the number of instructions that can be done. And each chart here represents a set of data um, that change what we call the window size. So the simplest way to think about the window size is how far am I looking when I'm considering instructions that might be executed in parallel? So if the window is 32 instructions, it means that every instruction that's executed on a particular clock cycle is within that window of 32. So think of the oldest instruction and the furthest instruction you might consider. That window size is 32. So here we take the window size from infinite, meaning we look at the entire program at once, 
as possible candidates, down to 256 to 128 to 64 to 32. So this is the range today between 128 and 32 that real processors. Well, you notice that the parallelism falls quite steeply in a number of these programs, from the infinite case down to when you get down to realistic levels of 32 or 64. Even in the floating point programs, it falls, it falls quite quickly. And that depends on some unusual structure in these programs. One of the things that's happening here is when the window size is very large, you can actually have a situation where you look across two independent loops in the code, which are completely independent of one another, but which are sequential when they're laid down, and find parallelism. So even if the loop, even if one iteration depends on the next in the loop, if these two loops are independent, boom, they can be executed in parallel. And if the window size is big enough, you may actually see some of that parallelism. What happens inside a real pipeline? This is a picture of the Intel um, P6 pipeline, which is the pipeline that's in a Pentium 3 processor and some of its predecessors, and is actually not a bad approximation to what's inside a Pentium 4. Um, it is, in fact, it in fact has 10 stages in it, but I've lumped them together into five here just to make it easier to understand what's happening. And in fact, the difference between a Pentium 3 and a Pentium 4 is that in a Pentium 4, each one of those is divided in half. So it has 20 stages. Well, if you think of this machine, what it does is it crams instructions in one end and tries to get them out the other end. And it has a set of buffers between each step. What happens in a real machine, though, is you start here, for example, fetching 16 bytes per cycle. For, a, for an Intel-style architecture, that's about five instructions. And then you decode some number of those. Then you try to do a step called register renaming. Um, and then you go to the execution units, and finally you try to complete those instructions at the end. What happens is every time you drop an instruction, because something doesn't go right, at that stage, it's impossible to recover. You've basically lost a slot in your execution flow. So you lose things here. You get um, branch mispredict. You get inefficient instruction fetches. Then you lose here because there are some limitations in instruction decode. You lose here because registry naming isn't perfect or you can't map to the queues. There are not enough ready operations to fill the execution units. And finally, you may not be able to complete the instructions because you're still waiting for some very old instruction to complete. Each step of the way, performance gets thrown away. How much? A stunning amount, an absolutely stunning amount. So this is um, data taken from the P6 um, design and microarchitecture. That's a machine which can do three Intel x86 instructions per clock. It actually doesn't pipeline those instructions. It uses a very clever technique that Professor Doug Clark helped invent in the VAX 8500 of cracking those instructions into little tiny risk instructions, these very simple instructions called microoperations, and then actually pipelining those. Now, what everybody first guesses is, well, it's that, the inefficiency is that process of changing those very powerful x86 instructions into these wimpy little risk instructions, which don't do very much work. And they're nice to pipeline, but they don't do very much work. Well, the loss from that mapping part is this little tiny red bar here. 
So that's not where the loss is. Where is the loss? How come we don't end up with three instructions done every clock cycle? Well, you lose some in the data cache that's not hidden, not covered over by other kinds of instruction level parallelism. That's the orange bar. Then you occasionally mispredict branches. And on some programs, like the C compiler, you mispredict a lot of branches. Sometimes you have a resource capacity problem in some of these, which means that there's basically you're out of space at some key functional unit. There's no more buffering available. You can't get another buffer allocated, so you can't move forward. You ha have an instruction cache problem, particularly, again, in the integer codes like GCC. In the end, you start out. You're going to do three instructions per clock. In the end, you end up doing between 0.33 and 1.33. All the rest of that is wasted. And of course, you're trying to make that processor go full speed, but just not very much is getting through. So now let me turn to some three more recent examples and give you a flavor for what actually is going on in these. So here are three very recent processors, an Intel Pentium 4, the IBM Power 4 Plus, which, by the way, is actually a dual processor, and the Intel Itanium 2 um, with, with multi-threading support. Um, these machines can do, execute up to 11 operations per clock cycle, um, but 11, 8, or 4. Um, they've got anywhere from 8 to 15 functional units, 15 functional units inside the machine. Uh, they have complicated caches, which we don't need to pay any attention to. But I do want you to look at these last two columns. They've got from 55 million to 221 million transistors. And a die size that varies by a factor of more than three. They also have power, lots of power, in a very small die. So this becomes a major concern. So let's look at some performance data. Again, these are uh, scientific codes, and these are integer programs. So you see in the scientific codes that the Itanium 4 does pretty well, although there are cases where the Power 4 does about as well. And the Pentium 4 is not that great, probably, overall. On the integer codes, we see something different. The Pentium 4, which is the smallest of the processors, does quite well. Now, what about efficiency? Well, here are some measures of efficiency. Take all the entire spec suite of integer programs. So these are all integer uh, applications. These are all floating point. And look at how well they do in terms of transistor count efficiency or square millimeters of silicon efficiency or power. And you see the numbers are radically different here. And obviously, the attempt to push the processors very hard is yielding lots of diminishing returns and low efficiencies. So what's going on with this energy efficiency issue? I just want to make one critical point here. From an architectural perspective, and sweeping a few details under the rug, um, power is a function of the number of transistors that you switch and the frequency at which you switch them. There's a technology factor in there, and that is, that's important, particularly if you look at the IBM data. There's a, a technology advantage they have in terms of power. But the first approximation, it's transistor switch times frequency. 
So think about what happens when you build a machine that tries to exploit a lot of instruction-level parallelism. If you make the pipeline deeper, you run the clock faster. You burn more power switching transistors. If you try to do more instruction issues per clock, then you make it wider. You burn more power because you're switching more transistors. This is actually probably acceptable if the extraction of instruction-level parallelism is very efficient. But it's not even close. And as you do speculation, it gets progressively worse. Because after all, what speculation is doing is it's making guesses. The more guesses you make, the higher your probability of being wrong and the more power you burn. So that compounds the problem. Unfortunately, there are probably no silver bullets here. If you want to extract more instruction-level parallelism, you'll burn more power. And as you make the machines wider, there are increasing inefficiencies you have to deal with. So here's my, here's my big picture view of what's happening. We're not about to run into a performance wall where you won't see faster processors occur, but it's getting increasingly difficult to find that performance. We're seeing increasing diminishing returns. The easier territory is behind us. One of the most astounding things is that the gap between research and implementation by industry has vanished. So people write papers within a year or two, if it's a good idea, not the bad ideas, sometimes the bad ideas even. <laughs> They're in a rush. <laughs> sometimes the bad ideas um, get included into the processor. As opposed to an earlier model, papers were written, sometimes it would be five or 10 years before that idea would really make it into the mainstream. So I think of this as, as a steeper mountain. We're pushing a very large boulder. A design with 200 million transistors in it is extremely complicated. It's very hard to get it right. You're pushing this big boulder up a progressively steeper mountain. And at some point, that boulder rolls backwards. And the processor collapses. The design team has to start again. Or you get something that's so ineffective that it's not a competitive project. And I think, as we'll see, energy efficiency will become the key limit here. So where now? What next? Well, it's a great 30-year history. The amount of, I think, all of us who worked in this field early on would have never guessed that machines, processors, would get as fast as they got. Never contemplated that this was achievable. But there is a diminishing returns problem, uh, particularly, particularly for integer programs. Floating point is easier. It's a lot easier. The problem is that the floating point market is not a sufficiently large part of the computing market these days to keep somebody who's going to invest $200 million in the design of a microprocessor interested. So that's a dynamic that's playing itself out right now. Short term, you can look for some clever combination of these things, but it's not clear that there is one yet. There is some simple way to combine them. But what about long term? Long term, I believe that we need to turn to a more explicit use of parallelism, what we call thread-level parallelism, some sort of parallelism that the programmer, or at least the programming language, is aware of, makes more explicit in the process so that we can extract it. It addresses both the shortcomings of the instruction-level parallelism approach. Namely, there is no limitation from the instruction-level parallelism extraction process. That goes away. And the physical design constraints get much easier as well. 
You don't have to design a machine which is now trying to grab large numbers of instructions and force them through some pipeline. You have a much simpler design problem. There's already good progress in this direction. The IBM Power 4 actually has two processors on a single chip, and there's support for a concept called simultaneous multi-threading, which is sort of a half step towards, towards some sort of uh, multiple processors on chip in the Pentium 4. But there are some very hard problems. What is so wonderful about the instruction level parallelism technique is that it's functionally transparent to the software. Nobody who was writing an application really had to understand anything about how the performance was being gained. It was extracted by some combination of compiler and hardware techniques. It was wonderful. The, the architects could just get smarter. The compiler writers could get smarter. Your code could stay the same. It just got faster. That's unlikely to be the case as we move to more explicit forms of parallelism. The other big advantage you get is that there's low overhead for lots of key things in an instruction-level parallelism machine. Data exchange is cheap. You do it through the registers or through the cache. Synchronization is implicit. And speculation, there's hardware-based recovery mechanisms, which make the choice, make the cost of a bad mistake smaller. So what happens when we move to a thread-level model? Somebody has to identify the parallelism explicitly, likely the programmer in some fashion. The data exchange overhead goes way up. Um, typically, you better expect that to exchange data between two executing parallel tasks will take on the order of 10 to the 2 clock cycles, simply because these two machines are completely decoupled and, you're and running at high clock rates. And of course, you've got to do synchronization. And speculation, if it's done, is most likely going to be done by the programmer. So the programmer is going to have to figure this out, make it work, make some very hard guesses about what's worth doing and what's not worth doing. So I'll leave you with a few concluding thoughts. The first is, what will happen to the demand for computer performance in a clearly evolving world of applications, a world that's become much more web-centric, which has the advantage that there's a natural kind of parallelism that can be exploited in that environment. What's the demand for performance on a single task? Does anybody really need Microsoft Word to run faster? I just need it to crash less often. <laughs> there are, of course, some compelling tasks, and I think all of us would like to see uh, a user interface that was a lot more natural. We'd like to be able to have a program that read our email and really decided what was spam, what was not spam, what should just go directly to your calendar and schedule automatically, and when President Tillman wanted to see you very quickly. <laughs> We'd all like that. So I think there are some demands, but, there are, but that will require a, a re innovation in terms of our applications. The key architectural question, and the one I think we don't have a very good answer to at all, is, well, suppose you are building multiple processors on a single chip. Is there some clever insight that comes from that that enables you to exploit that fact in some interesting way? This was, in fact, that insight that perhaps having a processor on a single chip should change computer architecture was what drove the RISC project at Berkeley and the MIPS project at Stanford. So it was that innovation 
that enabled us to rethink how we were designing machines. You can ask exactly the same question here. But the key challenge is somehow to deal with this issue that to some extent we've avoided, which is how do you make parallelism more explicit and easy to use at the same time? And we've kind of danced around the edge of it. There's been a lot of progress in algorithms. But this is a long-standing problem and one that I don't think we've made particularly great progress on. In fact, if anything, the research community got off track in the 90s. And it got off track by an insistence that what really mattered was massive parallelism. So we focused all our attention on this problem um, and didn't focus our attention on the immediate problem of how do you run five or 10 things in parallel and do it easily so that the burden on the programmer is small. My view is that we have a lot of work to do. We're, we don't have very much time left because the processor community is pushing very hard. They're very far out on that edge. There's a lot of work to be done. And it will only be done in the research community. This is work that's so fundamental, so difficult, and so speculative that industry can't do it. It has to be done in the research community. So I hope all of you out there that are younger than me will take this word and work on this problem. Thanks for your attention. Let's see, questions for John Hennessy? Wayne? What set of benchmarks do you think, on the one hand, needs all this uh, raw computing power, and on the other hand, is needed in enough volume to justify building large fab lines? Right. I think that's a good question. I think, to some extent, we are in danger of um, being in a position where our ability to create very fast computers outstrips our ability to use them. Now, that's certainly not true in the scientific market. And I think if you begin to really contemplate doing a decent job of protein folding, for example, you can burn lots and lots of computer time. Um, and I think it, biology will provide many of those interesting problems. Physics still provides lots of them. Certainly, the astrophysics community has lots of problems that justify that. Quantum chromodynamics can justify lots of computer cycles. I think it's much harder to say what those things are outside of the scientific domain. In particular, what are the applications that have a compelling, large commercial interest? If you look at, look at, what ha look at what's happening with, with personal computers, you see Intel's ads. What do they advertise? Play the latest game on your computer faster than your friend can play it on his computer. So we need to rethink that. What's the fundamental problem, I think, that we haven't made much progress on in terms of computers? They're too hard to use. They crash too often. So throw some cycles at those problems. The cycles are cheap. Throw a lot of cycles at it. Right? And I think, so what does that require? That requires some real research into ease of use, and it requires some real research into how to make machines more reliable. I think we've, lo we've lost something which existed early on in the 70s, which was a was referred to as this time concept. And it was what drove the development of the Xerox Alto, for example. I'm going to put on your desk a machine 
which is not cost-effective to replicate for the general public right now. It's 10 times too expensive. I'm going to put that in front of you. You're going to try to use that in novel ways, realizing that five years from now, everybody can have that machine. We need to do more of that kind of creative, creative thinking. And I think from that, you, you never know where the insights will come from. They, last week, they had a, um, a celebration of, I guess, what would be the 35th anniversary of the spreadsheet. Um, here's something you never would have guessed, but it completely revolutionized. It was a business use for computing. That complete, it created the PC industry, together with word processing, of course. We need more thinking like that. I think that thinking is going to come from people who think outside the box a bit and who are willing to try things that are a little off the beaten path and which perhaps some of them will be successful and a lot of them won't be. Let's see. Question over there. That are unused. Hmm. And I'm curious as to as you think about massive or, or new approaches to parallelism, what about kind of waste on the other end of the spectrum? Sure, sure, sure. There's a lot of waste and, and increasingly attempts to exploit that waste, whether it's through SETI at home or uh, folding at home or any of these attempts to use the massive power. We have one small problem that's raised its ugly head. It's called security. Um, and it's become a big problem quickly. Um, and our uh, computers are tremendously insecure. Would you want somebody unknown to you coming onto your desktop machine and uh, using it, knowing that they potentially could break into it and access all your files, erase your hard disk? I, I think we've got to solve that problem. We need a more uh, convenient, reliable environment to solve that problem. But there's no doubt there are, there are an enormous number of cycles that are wasted. The other observation you can make is that um, these cycles are connected by mostly relatively low bandwidth interconnections. Um, you may think of 10 megabits as a lot of uh, bandwidth, but if you realize that between the processor and memory, there's probably 10 gigabits worth of bandwidth. Um, the communication bandwidth is actually quite small. So the number of applications that will be amenable to that kind of massive parallelism of desktop machines sitting around, clusters, things like that, are probably, probably limited. There are good applications for it, but you won't, solve, you won't solve a lot of other problems using that technology. Question here. Uh, these are two areas that um, were not mentioned in your talk. Hopefully you might be able to comment. One is quantum computing. Second is um, chess programs that beat um, pretty good people. At Stanford University, uh, is anybody doing any work in that area? If not, uh, who is? And could you comment on um, how far we are along the quantum computing um, area business? And... Um, um, Right. Uh, and the chess and the chess the chess program uh, cap capability. The last thing that I know of is that there was a tie between Karpov and the, uh, right. and, the and the computer. And I have a feeling that if if we're going to do all this love 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 lovely stuff, we just make make humans. We're going to leave uh, leave humans in the dust as far as right. chess capability. Thank you. Right. The chess game is over. It's basically over. One more turn of the technology crank, 
Um, in fact, if you look at what Kasparov did in this last match, he exploited some particular uh, structural weaknesses of this chess program that people don't have, but computers do. Um, and he knew those were there, and he really focused on those. Um, my guess is that one more turn of the technology crank, and nobody will be able to beat a computer. The interesting thing is 40 years ago, people predicted that computers would beat humans at chess. They predicted it because the computers would get very smart. They would get lots of artificial intelligence, and they would play like humans. It has been totally brute force. They are not smart at all. They just can evaluate many more positions more quickly than we can do it. Oh, they've gotten some more complex objective function in there. So they know that, for example, a board position is not a good board position. So they know more than just pieces being taken and things. They have some sense of what's a good board position when the king is unprotected, for example, and therefore score that board position is lower. But it's brute force. They can look 10 plies, 10 moves ahead, 10 pairs of moves. A good chess player looks three or four. So they're just much better than, than we are. The interesting thing, when you mentioned chess, of course, Turing in his early work was a big fan of the chess problem and thought a lot about the chess problem. Um, and yet we're close to solving that problem. But look how far we, we are from solving the Turing test problem, the test of building a computer that can carry on a conversation so that you can't tell whether it's a computer or a person. We're not even close. We're not even close on things that we take as trivial tasks, recognizing a person's face, navigating around a room, all these things that come so easily to us shows you that evolution is a remarkably powerful tool. And we have a long ways to go in that regard. Computers are young in the evolutionary scale of things. So I think that will continue to be an interesting thing. Quantum computing. Well, this is an interesting problem. Um, so let me say that eventually silicon does run out of steam. It absolutely does happen. You get to the point where the number of electrons held on the gate of a transistor becomes so small that that transistor no longer operates predictably. Uh, and then you think about quantum computing. So there's good and bad news about quantum computing. I think the good news is that you've actually, they've actually been able to do a few things. The bad news is will they ever be flexible computing devices, even if you can build them, um, even if you can deal with the probabilistic nature that a quantum computer has, um, which it's not so clear you can deal with that. But even if you could deal with that, will they ever be flexible? There was a lot of infatuation a few years ago with optical computing. And optical computing was going to replace conventional computing. And a lot of the, that buzz has disappeared. And I think it's disappeared because you find out that um, optics are very good for communication. They're not very flexible for computing. Um, the advantage that makes optics great for communication is the fact that light doesn't interfere with itself. But what do you want inside of it? Switching and logic is really about having two electrical signals that interfere with each other. And that's, I think, what will make, will make it difficult for quantum computing. That kind of flexibility will be, will be very difficult, uh, very difficult to achieve. My guess is that right now what's likely to happen is silicon will last longer than we think because no manufacturing barrier 
has ever stopped the advance of silicon technology. There's too many dollars. There's too many smart people working on it. It just continues to go on. Then I, I suspect what will happen is the next technology will be some nano-based thing that operates like the, like the carbon nanotubes that people at Bell and IBM have been experimenting with, but that operates on the same basic principle and that that will be good for quite a bit longer after, after conventional silicon devices become too difficult to make. Question here. Um, you talk about uh, how it's becoming more expensive to make these processors, how there's more attempt to put uh, symmetric multi-threading or more difficult uh, hardware in there to, to achieve parallelism, and then how that's driving up uh, the, you know, the energy consumption. Um, is another way to possibly look at it some of the stuff that's going on with uh, CPU to CPU transports? Maybe leave the processor's simpler, but find better connectivity, such as hypertransport or I/O seven in the alpha, or you know, yes. can you speak about that a little? Yes, bit? no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, what I would I would exactly argue that that is the direction in which we need to move. Um, thinking about the, the the problem, one part of the problem is that so far what's happened is we've taken the concepts in putting multiple processors on a chip. We've taken the concepts which were appropriate when processors were a cluster, a small cluster of chips communicating to another small cluster of chips, and we've said, we'll embed those concepts in hardware. We probably need to rethink that and ask whether or not the fact that these things are naturally on the same piece of silicon should cause you to rethink it. And I think that that problem has not been adequately explored. But there's another problem here. You will never, if you want these individual processors to run fast, you will never make the communication as cheap as it is within a single processor. It can't be. It's simply not as tight. Um, the fact that the processor is running very fast and has to communicate with another processor, in the future, those processors will probably have two different clocks for lots of interesting reasons having to do with clock synchronization problems and power consumption and things like that. So now, synchronizing those two processors and getting them to exchange data is going to be more expensive. How are you going to deal with that issue? Um, I sometimes tell people parallel computing isn't hard. Efficient parallel computing is very hard. And if what you really, if the only reason to go to use more parallelism is to get performance, then what I really care about is efficient parallel computing. And I think that's the problem you really have to overcome through some combination of hardware and software. Yes. Well, I'm in the process of doing a 4004 lobotomy because I've seen a lot here. But your, your question about what's out ahead, um, I think the protection of intellectual property is the A number one question in our nation because if you go to China, you see the containers filled with products that we used to make, uh, shipping across the Pacific with barcodes, et cetera, with uh, you know, five sigma quality control and all that. And it drives to the encryption of IP, which takes a lot of compute. Uh, it also drives to fault tolerance. Uh, one of the things that you haven't mentioned is the uh, Moore's law in photonics is probably 10 times faster than the Moore's law in uh, compute, so that uh, you know, fiber optic pipes are, you know, to India are essentially decimating. You know, you have these uh, Indians that are working at $10 a day as opposed to $10 an hour. 
and uh, you have graphics and compression. That is, I'd like to dial my movie. I'd like to have my compute decom decompress that movie. Uh, so I'd like to have a very small bit stream, and I'd like to have any movie on the planet anytime I want to have the movie and tell the CATV companies to go pound the rope because I want what I want when I want it. Um, you have storage curves that are four or five times faster than Moore's Law. You have the um, speech recognition. You know, what's a keyboard? You know, Daddy, tell me what's a keyboard. Did you really have keyboards back then? And um, what are the other things I talked about? Uh, new material, like gallium arsenide, the, essentially the atomic structure of the material on silicon versus others. So there's plenty of stuff going on on this planet, and a lot of it is, you know, major portions of our GNP, and it's getting to be much larger. And the game that we are really moving from is stop shipping atoms and start shipping electrons or photons. And unless we do that real quickly, the Indians and the Chinese are going to eat our lunch. Boy, that's a long question. <laughs> um, well, let me say that I think uh, the challenge which will be created, which is being created, which is in play right now, of the high technology industry sending and developing jobs which compete at the high end of the IP generation scale, not at the low end of the IP generation scale, in India and China will be the biggest technical problem that we face as a country, the biggest economic problem we face as a country. I think it is going to be monumentally difficult. And by the way, in Singapore, it's happening in the biotech industry. And I think this will be a fundamentally difficult problem. We're not talking about the low end of the IP scale. We're not talking about manufacturing anymore. We're talking about the high end of the IP scale. And I think this is going to be a real challenge. We're going to have to figure out how to do things better. We're going to have to figure out how, as a country, we continue the enormous inflow of immigrant talent, which has been the greatest asset this country has had as it's built its scientific and, and technical prowess. The greatest asset we've had. And Believe me, everybody over there understands what an enormous asset it's been for the United States and is trying to create a similar kind of environment. So I think, I think that will be, the, will be the biggest challenge. And you can already see it happening. Look at software firms that are sending work to other parts of the world, over to India, and hardware firms that are sending out hardware designs. And if you watched what's happened in the PC industry, Intel still makes the processor. But by the way, all the rest of the work occurs somewhere else in the world. And they do all the design work, they manufacture it, and they ship it. Um, if you look at a company like uh, Dell, Dell spends mm, between a half and 1% of its revenue on research and development. Between half and 1% on research and development. Who does it? Well, by the time Intel's done and Microsoft is done, you don't need that much more but it actually gets done mostly abroad. And so, and these companies, uh, it's not, they're not just manufacturing. They're taking complex pieces of silicon, complex pieces of software, making it all work together, and shipping it. I think it's gonna be a real challenge for us, because I think this is clearly a country that can only survive economically with our current status, our current uh, life that we're used to. Um, by staying ahead in that race, by staying ahead in the brain race. And so protection of IP is going to be clear, is going to be important, but so is generating new IP. One last question here, Maria. 
of the things I'm surprised you didn't say to that, John, is that we have to change our education system so that we do as good a job of educating engineers and scientists in North America as they seem to manage to be able to do in India and in China. But Maria, you know what the, Maria and I both agree on what the big problem is. It's getting a larger fraction of our society to go into engineering and science careers. I think this is, this is our fundamental failing. We don't draw enough Americans into engineering and science. And given what's happened with, in the aftermath of 9-11, where this now looks like an increasingly um, disinviting place, a place that looks increasingly difficult to immigrate to, um, and, and less inviting than it looked, um, we're going to have to solve that problem. We're going to have to draw more of our population into this. We're going to have to win the education war. And that's going to be challenging. This year, um, uh, the People's Republic will pass by the United States as the largest grantor of undergraduate degrees in engineering and science. And they're growing at a compound rate of 15% a year. So figure it out. In five years, they'll be double what we are. So we've got to, uh, and clearly the degrees are not equivalent and we do a better job, um, but we're going to have to continue. I think we do a better job. I hope we do a better job. So one, oh. <laughs> one last question here in overtime. So John, um, I wonder if you would take a cut at answering the question that I asked my class in cybersecurity this afternoon. This is supposed to be a class to teach technology to non-engineers uh, and talk about policy, social, economic issues surrounding engineering and to teach these issues to engineers. So the question I asked was, should we embed values in technology? Because in the information, a little background to this, in the information society, the fabric of society is, uh, is uh, set by hardware and software technology. Uh, the processor is the engine of the information age. Okay, but um, should technology be agnostic or should we ask the computer architect to consider other goals rather than performance, cost, cost effectiveness, power, all these good engineering things. Um, when we actually design computers in industry, they also ask us to consider longevity, uh, ease of use, scalability, different application environments, and so forth. Should we ask computer architects to consider things, for example, like honesty, uh, um, ethical values, fairness, this sort of thing in the design of computer architecture and in particular things uh, like security, um, preventing mm -hmm. privacy violations, preventing denial of service attacks where your right. computer is used to attack other websites without your information. Should computer vendors and software vendors have some responsibility for this? Right. Do you think we should use some of those 200 million transistors to do some of this? And if so, how do we train the new generations of computer architects? Well, that's a good question. In fact, I think you answered your own question with your latter examples. I think. Clearly, some of these things require certain underlying capabilities. 
And there's a difference between implementing and supporting the capability and imposing a policy on what happens. So security is a good example of that. Trustworthiness is a good example. You can implement an infrastructure which allows you, if you have two parties that want to guarantee trust between one another, to secure that trust. And yet, the answer to that is yes. I think clearly in, the, in a more security conscious world, in a world where there will be hundreds of millions, if not a billion computers on the internet, and we'll be getting email from lots of people you've never heard of, you'd like to have that capability to have trust and security. Um, so I think you want the underlying policy. If I knew how to implement a test for honesty, I'd be so far ahead of the Turing test um, that it would, it would be uh, difficult to deal with. So I think clearly some of these things have importance, and I think intellectual property is clearly one. So you want the capability to implement it without necessarily deciding what policy you, you should implement in that environment. Let's thank John Hennessy once again.